The doc is in, and there's no need to stay in the waiting room for this episode of Health 411. Join Dr. Jonathan Karp as we discuss topics from health insurance to personal diet and exercise to up-to-date conversations in the healthcare industry and more. The Rider University Health Studies Institute presents Health 411, underwritten in part by the Ripovich Institute for New Jersey Politics and Rider University. Rider offers continuing studies programs for adults who need flexibility. Want to add new skills to your resume? Take a continuing studies course at Rider University. Now, let's see what the diagnosis is for this week's episode of Health 411. 107.7 The Bronx, 107.7thebronc.com. Proudly nominated for a National Association of Broadcasters 2019 Marconi Award for Best College Radio Station. We are recording from the remote Bronx studios at Rider University, and I'm Professor Jonathan Karp. The Health 411 program is presented by the Institute for New Jersey Politics and the Rider University Health Studies Institute. In Health 411, we discuss a variety of issues affecting health, wellness, public health, healthcare policy, and the politics of health and healthcare. Um, our goal is to expand your knowledge and perspective. Today, Isaac Harris, our student producer, and I are going to have a conversation uh, about wellness with a focus on the financial components of wellness. This is important because Long-time listeners to Health 411 will know when we talk about health, what are we talking about? Health is not just the absence of a particular disease. Um, health involves uh, um, um, uh, well-being and uh, both physiological and psychological well-being in order for you to be healthy. And so it's important for us to understand that there's a psych psychological component to health. In our society, people's financial status, financial state is a component to their psychological integrity and to their, to their well-being. And there's like, the, and there's, there are books, there's a whole you know, genre of you know, aisles of books and podcasts and TV shows about financial health. And it sort of can be in encapsulated in a, in a show about health. Um, and the financial component has to do with um, happiness. Well-being is often synonymous, not necessarily, I could argue that, but we don't have to go into it, with um, um, happiness. So we're going to talk about the interaction between money and happiness under the idea that happiness plays a role in determining whether somebody is healthy or not, which is, we know health, healthy is, is not just the absence of disease. Am I setting this up in a way that makes sense, Isaac? Yes, yes, yes you are. I mean, um, everyone says, uh, I mean, in my opinion, everyone says, oh, money can't be, it's not always like the true health to happiness, but I mean, it's, it's helpful. It's, it's like a bridge to get there. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. And, and so people put out there in, in, the, in, in the, the language of the common folk is can money buy happiness? In, the sense, in, in, in a sense, can, can money buy wellness? And what's interesting about that outside of sort of the popular press, the, you know, the reality TV shows and, um, you know, whatever it is out there, there you know, um, psychologists, especially social psychologists, um, have actually studied this. 
Um, and there are articles that have been published, peer reviewed out there, um, trying to address sort of the murky question, um, can money buy happiness? And connections to this show's overriding theme, can money um, uh, buy you wellness? And, there, and there, there is an interaction there. So what I wanna do today is talk a little bit about the literature and, um, um, I, I sent you a summary of, of a paper or so. I read a couple of papers and we're gonna talk about them, uh, about the link between money and health. Okay, and so hopefully you brought some questions that, that you wanna go with, with Isaac. I, I do, I do. I do brought some questions because I do got some questions right here. <laughs> you? Okay, so before I go into the literature, do you, do you have any overriding things that will help set up the discussion that we're gonna have? That are listening so, I guess from reading the summary that uh, you sent me, uh, you know, like it's a, the overall summary said money matters to happiness perhaps more than previous than thought. I, my always understanding, I always went with the common folk saying like, you know, money can't buy you all the happiness in the world because like you can't take it with you when you're dead and stuff. So like, I'm, even though you've seen the ridiculous, like some crazy stories out there that some people have been buried in their cars or They've been, I, I remember seeing some weird stuff, uh, you know, because people are so happy with the money that they acquired, they'd like take it with them or they don't donate it or they don't do anything with it. So my thing is with this peer review study, what is it, what's the, what's one thing that is trying to prove to me as a common person that's like, man, that Lamborghini or looking good is going to make me look, is going to make me feel happy. Okay, so it's interesting. So the idea that, you know, like you said, somebody being buried with their car is not a new thing. You can go back to the ancient Egyptians, you know, the pharaohs exactly. and the court, where they were being bar buried with their, you know, uh, with their gold, with their servants, with their queens, with everything they wanted to take with them. In a sense, their wealth and their money. Um, you see, um, you know, today's world, people are still digging up graves of uh people all over the world, you know, warriors who are buried with their favorite sword or with their harem. And so, so there's this, this whole sort of thing. You know, it's not a reflection of how um, healthy or how well these people were when, when they're alive, but it's something, it's, it's something that people want to take it with them, which we know we can't do. Um, and eventually all of us will die. Um, but all of us want to be well and have a quality of life um, while we're, we are alive. And um, so, and so people ask the question all the time, you know, uh, does earning more money lead to greater well-being? Does it lead to greater health? And um, there's a literature on that. And there's, um, and um, before I dive into it, is anything else you want to bring up quickly before we look at it? <laughs> Are we on the same page here? I think we're on the same page. I mean, there was a question, but I don't think it, I don't think I don't think I'm ready to ask you yet because I, I don't think I have it formulated right to ask that question okay. yet. Okay. So and and so look, that's a great thing. So let's begin. So if one was going to look at sort of the recent literature and some of the things that the social psychologists are coming out, um, there is an off-cited paper from about nine or uh, nine years ago, um, and what it looked at was, uh, this was a paper that was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science. And the title of the paper is High Income Improves Evaluation of Life 
but uh, not emotional well-being. And that tells us a couple different things. So what social psychologists who study things like happiness do is they break well-being uh, in a sense of happiness into two sort of categories. Um, and this is going to be important as we come into the modern era. It's, and, and a lot of these studies are done when people are asked questions and then they have to reflect back on what they were experiencing when something happened. So that's a, a kind of evaluative or you know, retrospective look at was I happy when this was going on? And there's another kind of happiness which is sort of a kind of happiness that's called experienced happiness. It's like, are you happy in the moment that something is going on? And what's interesting is that this paper called, and, it's, and I'm starting here because it's, it's something that's referenced. If you, you know, um, everything from financial advisors to podcasts and, you know, people in the popular press have really grabbed on this paper from years, years ago. And again, what they, what they did in this paper is they had people um, um, and, and in a very, very large data survey. And they asked questions about their income, obviously, their age, their education status, their religion, um, their children, their health, all these sort of things. And then they ran some regression analyses and they looked at what kinds of things were influencing these people's happiness. And this was a kind of thing that was a this is people looking back and answering questions about their life and things that have happened in the past. Now, what's quoted very, very often in this paper, and it's a good starting point for our discussion, is what they found is that there was um, a correlation or an association between um, their people's mood uh, and their level of income. They found there was association um, between their positive affect, you know, Oh, not feeling sad. And so all, all these different measures of happiness they had that they found is as people earned more and more money, they're, 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 there's these things that contribute positively to happiness went up, the things that negatively contributed to happiness went down. However, what these people found that there was a saturation point in terms of income. And what that meant was that after earning about 75 or 80, $80,000 a year, which is sort of a middle-class middle income, there was no improvement in any of the measures of emotional well-being that what they did. And their conclusion that's often cited was that beyond about, let's just say $75,000 in the contemporary United States, income, and I'll read from the paper, is uh, neither the road to experienced happiness nor the road to the relief of unhappiness or stress. And that's very, very interesting because it created, it put out there in, in a very relatively well done study, the idea is that as you earn more and more money, your happiness goes up, up until you hit about $75,000 or so. And then there was a saturation, right? And this thing has been put out there in the in, in, in the literature and repeated over and over and over again. And it's, I think it's an interest, interesting place for us to start our conversation. Really, so, yeah, because, I, yeah, because now I got some questions. Like, and, uh, I'll give it to the next segment. I'll give it to the next segment. Okay, so we're on a path to say higher income improves, you know, evaluation of life, um, 
but not necessarily emotional well-being and happiness. And we will come back and we will continue discussion after we take a break for some underwriting announcements. You're listening to 1077 The Bronx and 1077thebronc.com. This is Health 411, truthful health information to expand your knowledge and perspective. The Rider University Health Studies Institute presents Health 411, underwritten in part by the Repovich Institute for New Jersey Politics and Rider University. Continue your studies with Rider University's online and part-time options at rider.edu slash next step. We're back with Dr. Jonathan Karp, only on 1077 The Bronx. 1077 The Bronx, 1077 thebronxcom We are recording from the remote Bronx studios. Welcome back to Health 411. I'm Professor Jonathan Karp and Isaac Harris and I are having a conversation about um, health. And we know that health is not just the absence of disease. Health involves a state of positive mental and psychological well-being a component of positive and mental psychological well-being for people in the United States is related to income. And we know that um, from the literature and, and our own experiences. In the last segment, I introduced a paper uh, from a few years ago that talked about how, how I collected data and it showed that high income improves an evaluation of people's life but not necessarily emotional well-being. And in that paper, they said there was a threshold of about $75,000 a year of earnings that people make. And beyond that, you know, people's emotional well-being does not go up and up and up and up, and up forever. It's, it's, it was the idea that there was a saturation point. And that uh, has been sort of promoted in the literature now for you know, nine or 10 years since that paper came out. What spurred me to go back and look at that paper is I came across um, another paper that was recently published um, here in January of 2021. Um, and the title of that paper uh, was published in the, again, the same journal, the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science um, by a faculty member at the University of Pennsylvania. The title of the paper was Experienced Well-Being Rises with Income Even Above $75,000 Per Year. And this is a very, very interesting study. And it's a very, very, um, um, I think it's, it, it shows us a couple different things. It's a study that shows that science is ever evolving. People collect new data, they improve upon what was out there. See, science is always just telling you what's known in the moment. And you know, the title sort of tells us what the punchline is gonna be. And what's in, what they did in this study was very, very interesting. And it was, a, again, a social science experiment, but it was a technological advancement that allowed the, 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 the scientists who, who published this study to evaluate not just a retrospective sort of way that we talked about before, you know, where people collect all this demographic data and then they ask the question, you know, were you happy then? Or were you happy when this happened? Or are you happy now? What they did in this study and they had um, a huge number of people and they used apps. They, they, this, the, this guy invented an app on people's cell phone and what this app did and he had, you know, you know um, over a million people participating and this app every so often would like 
you know, buzz, vibrate, click on, whatever what happens with app size, like whatever it is. And it yeah, would say, how are you? <laughs> it would open up and it's like, how are you feeling right now? And it would happen at random throughout the day. So he was able to collect data, not just on people's happiness when they look back in time on things. He was able to collect, connect, you know, you know, people's own interpretive data on how they were feeling in the moment. And he did this for a while. He also collected information on, you know, um, education, sex, gender, all these other things that people study. And, you know, he, he asked the two questions. Could he separate the evaluative first of the, versus the experienced in the real time measures of well-being? Um, and this was very, very interesting because the study that put out there that said there was a $75,000 plateau in, in experienced well-being um, between, you know, income and, you know, remembered feelings, um, his data show that that might not be the case. And what was interesting about this is what they showed in, in this second paper was that there was no, and we can go to, we can go into as much detail as you want, Isaac, but there was mm. no ceiling effect, is that experience and evaluative measures of happiness went up and up and up. They continued to increase, right, um, beyond that $75,000 a year income threshold. So positive feelings went up negative feelings continued to decline. And, 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 and it was interesting because using these real-time measures from this app that would um, sort of put out there, sort of he was able to take the research beyond um, what was done you know, a few years earlier where they didn't have that ability to measure things in real time. He also looked at a, a scale that didn't have a ceiling. And in that previous study that had that, you know, $75,000 max over which there was no improvement, it, there was sort of a ceiling effect because you basically answered the question in a binary way. Are you happy or are you not happy? Right. And, once you, yeah, and once you hit happy, you can't go, oh, I'm even more happy now. So this guy changed sort of the scaling, was able to use a technological um, innovation to go past this um, to sort of show that, you know, not that you can buy happiness, but there are, is a linear thing. And he went up to um, around $500,000 a year in his studies showing that, you know, ex both experienced and evaluative measures of happiness continue to incline way past that $75,000 a year threshold. Right, yeah, um, I mean, who, who wouldn't be happy with uh, more money? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> well, uh, so, well, so the so you have these subjective feelings of happiness, both retrospectively and in real time, and the so part of our discussion is um, why do you think that's so? Uh, well, I'm, from what you were saying, go ahead, go ahead, Doctor Carp. I apologize. So I, I was going to remind you. This is Health Four One One. We're interested in you know aspects of health. Right, mm -hmm. and there's a lot of ways that you could spin this, and you're you're, you're laughing because you know the, the, the more toys make you happier, right? <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, but as you said before, Isaac, no matter what toys you have, you can't take them with you, right? Right. You can try, right. but someone's just someone's gonna rob your grave, you know. <laughs> like the right. Exactly. Exactly. And that's the thing that I'm trying to figure out because, like, for me, like, I think it's the stress factor. Um, I know, like, I look at it, I look at it as like, okay. 
I have a lot of money, I look at it as a security blanket. Like, oh, I'm prepared if something happens, like for an emergency, or like I'm I'm content with myself. However, like some people might look at it, like, oh, I have a lot of money. That means like I, I look at it as like more of a stress factor. That's why I want to ask, like, so that's why I had a question where it's like, okay, if people are more content when they have like when they reach a certain point with how much money they make, what happens when people reach that point and they're still not happy? I mean, you've seen you've seen celebrities and also just regular people that make a high that make a high that make a high living, and they're still not content and per se, I guess not as well like happy. Like, I mean, for instance, where one of the prime examples is Kate Spade. She um, she's a famous fashion designer, and she unfortunately um, committed um, committed suicide. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I want to know that correlation as well. So. That's my biggest. Okay, no, that, right, absolutely, and, and you're and you're you're. We want to get there, um, but we can go there now because you brought it up. I was going to bring these things up sort of later. Um, the paper itself does not answer the question why more income is correlated with higher measures of well-being and happiness. Um, um, there could be a lot of answers for it in some people, and it, it's 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 tricky because it's probably not for everybody. There's a lot of factors involved. You measured things like stress, so it's possible if you have more money, you can spend some of that money to reduce stress, and that can improve happiness. If you have more money, you um, you know you live in basically um, a less fraught environment where if you get a parking ticket. You know, it's not good. You're still going to be able to eat lunch. You know, uh, you get a speeding ticket. If you, if something happens to you or, you know, you, you tear your pants, you can buy a new pair of pants, whatever it may be. Those are ways of reducing sort of being on the socioeconomic edge. And we know from, you know, and we've talked about on this program many times, being on sort of the financial, you know, you know, between being okay and falling off the edge, that's a, that's a very stressful way to live your day-to-day -day lives. And mm -hmm. there are health consequences to that. There are long-term stress, there are physiological responses to being chronically stressed can influence um, everything from your immune system to how you respond to vaccines, to uh, how well you sleep and how, you know, heart rate, blood pressure, kidney function, a whole bunch of things we've talked about. So there's some, you can, you can make the guess that income might allow you to spend your money on things um, that, are, that reduce stress. They, you know, where people who are low income earners um, might have you know, sources of suffering, but they can't buy their way out of it. And that's certainly a possibility. Um, on the other side, there are probably people, no matter how much money they earn, are not gonna feel happy. And that's sort of what you were getting at. Um, Isaac, and, uh, and there could be a lot of reasons for that too. There can be underlying pathologies, there could be um, things that we're gonna talk about um, uh, what leads to happiness. And part of that is uh, relationships with other people. You know, you hear jokes, uh, you know, about, you know, how marriage improves life expectancy in both males and females, uh, <laughs> you know, reducing, you know, influencing stress. Um, and those are some of the things that we wanna talk about. Um, but what's it, what, the reason I bring up this paper, it was a, a 2021 paper that showed you know, new things were learned. So contrary to past research, that there was this new research showed there was no evidence for a 
plateau around $75,000 um, with people reporting their well-being. And we're going to continue on this path and talk about more about happiness after some brief underwriting announcements. You're listening to Health 411 on 1077 The Bronx and 1077thebronc.com. This is Health 411, truthful health information to expand your knowledge and perspective. The Rider University Health Studies Institute presents Health 411, underwritten in part by the Ripovich Institute for New Jersey Politics and Rider University. Continue your studies with Rider University's online and part-time options at rider.edu slash next step. We're back with Dr. Jonathan Karp, only on 1077 The Bronx. Welcome back to Health 411 on 1077 The Bronx and 1077thebronc.com. Um, I'm Professor Jonathan Karp and our student producer Isaac Harris and I are talking a little bit about uh, the what, what it means to be healthy. And we know in the United States, part of being healthy is being financially secure. And we're talking a little bit about the, you know, the literature that's out there by sociologists and psychologists that are studying the interaction between money and wellness. And that's sometimes couched um, in terms of not just you know, the absence of disease, but they're talking about happiness, which is the psychological component of wellness. And um, another paper, recent paper that I came around uh, um, was published in, in, in 2020 in the Journal of S uh, Social, Psychological and Personality Science. The, they, they have further analyzed what it means to be happy. And one of the things that psychologists have done is they've, you know, is you study things more and more, you learn more and more. And they have sort of separated when it comes to being happy, happy, the frequency of being happy and the intensity of being happy. And so there's a paper that, that came out in, in the past year uh, and the title is Income More Reliably Predicts Frequent Than Intense Happiness. And this is something that's, that I think plays into this, this the, the correlation that is, that, that is out there between measures of happiness going up and income going up and measures of sadness going down as income goes down. And what they, what they sort of looked at here is the dynamics of happiness and, and the frequency of happiness is the number of happiness episodes you have. And the number of happiness episodes that you have doesn't always mean the intensity of each happiness episode is the same. And what's very, very interesting in this paper, because they made some predictions. Um, they, 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 and their predictions were based on income, based on other literature that shows like how people of different incomes spend their time. And they had a prediction that said, um, income will predict the frequency of happiness, right? And what they knew from previous research is that lower income people are more likely to spend their sort of free time in a passive sort of way, you know, watching TV, laying on a couch, uh, and people for their leisure activities. Whereas people with higher income, um, they spend some of their recreational or happiness time um, in, in leisure activities, active activities. Um, and people know that leisure activities have a cumulative effect on well-being. You know, if you are, if you move and you're active, there are physiological things that change people's 
um, you know, mood and happiness and, and all sorts of things like that. And what was very, very interesting about this is in, in these people's paper is they did several studies in this paper. And what they found out in this paper um, is that the frequency and intensity of happiness, right, um, not, didn't necessarily go together. Um, but they were all related or correlated with income. And um, it's sort of, so did I set this up in, in, a, in a good way? Yeah, yeah, I, I think you did. Okay, so, okay. so what they found was that income was consistently positively related to happiness frequency, right? And mm -hmm. happiness frequency was in part explained um, between income and life satisfaction due to decreased passive leisure. So as income went up, people spent money on more active leisure activities and that made them happier. Right. That, did you so, so, so example, and if I may ask, an example of that would be like horseback riding? Yes, yes. Right, well, yeah. so a pat, somebody with lower income might watch people on TV horseback riding, whereas somebody with higher income might go out actually and ride a horse themselves. I mean, right. that, that wasn't in the paper, but you, you, you sort of get the idea. And what yeah. they found in, 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 in their data, which is very, very interesting, is if you spend your money on more of these active things, there are health benefits of being active, you know, just moving. Um, one of our previous guests, Isaac, saying, actually said, I remember her, her saying, you know, we were, humans were built to move. Do you remember mm -hmm. that? Yes, and yes so I do. If, if, if we move, it actually improves our happiness and it improves our, our, our health and our well-being. And what's interesting, they're saying is, with more money, people spend more time doing that. And there are, I mean, there's, there's, and there, there are, you know, social determinants of health reasons for that. For example, you might know that it's better for you to move, but if you live in a, you know, a sort of a economically depressed area, you can't go out for a walk, or it's not safe to go out for a walk, or you certainly can't go out for a jog if you're worried about your safety. You know, right. your, your stress goes up and there are, there are all these consequences to that. So in a sense, more money might buy you more leisure time. Um, and that sometimes that result has some health benefits if people do active things in their leisure time. Some of these studies also show that people in the, that, in the, the middle range of money also report sometimes a lot of stress comes with that. It's a different kind of stress. It's more of a psychological, you're not, in, you're not fear of being mugged if you step outside of your apartment in, in an inner city somewhere. Um, but you might have other kinds of fears, um, kinds of things. And, uh, I, and this, I, I'm, I'm, we're, we're talking about this and I wanna, get, I wanna engage you Isaac too, but it's a fascinating link that's associated with health and wellness. It's the financial components of it. Looks like you wanna say something. Yeah, because like I, I think about it with myself, because it's like me personally, I don't live in a situation to where like I have to. I mean, I do, but not really. I live in a suburb of Washington, of the Washington D.C. area, and I see, and it's one of the and it's one of the few places, as my mom and dad put it, because they're not originally from the area. The, it's one of the few places in the world where you can't really see like the mental health aspect of someone being like upset with being in low income because low income people where I live 
they're, they don't look like they're low income in Newark, New Jersey or Atlanta, Georgia or Jackson, Mississippi. They're, they're doing a little better off. So it's like, you can't really, it's, it's very masked here. And for me, I know like for me, for if I was, if I was a little more financially independent or I guess uh, independently wealthy, as uh, some people would say, I, I know for me, I would like, I would immediately move to the water. I'd immediately move somewhere on the water and try to paddleboard every week. That because I because I've seen people do it. It seems fun. I've seen pictures of it. I've done it once before. I have to pay twenty bucks to rent one to rent a paddleboard. So it's definitely I'm as I'm listening to you. I'm definitely like seeing all these correlations. Like man, that's how I actually want to feel. That's actually how I want to live. But for me, I know like in my personal life currently, I don't really see. I don't really see. I see like some difference, but like I live in unfortunately in the area where it's Hollywood suburbia in a way where it's very you can't really tell. It's like a, it's like a bubble. Well, yeah, it, it, it is a bubble. Suburbia can be that way, um, mm-hmm. but it, you know, especially in, you know, in the, the you know Fairfax, Virginia, sort of outside DC area, uh, a lot of those suburbs are you know middle class and upper middle class suburbs. Yeah, um, the people there are 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 families there are earning. Um, uh, I, I want to say say this in a politically correct sort of way. Way above the dangerous levels for poverty in the, in the United States. Yeah, you, you would agree to that, correct? Right. So I would you, 100% you, agree. You, have, you have people who can use their income to sort of not necessarily buy happiness, but they can. And, and the the paper we're just talking about, so people with higher incomes have um, more happiness frequency but not necessarily happiness intensity. And one of the things the income can do is you can, you can rent you know, a kayak, you can rent a paddleboard, you don't have to buy it, but if you rent it and have it at your disposal, you're not doing it at the expense of paying the mortgage or right. feeding yourself or your family or, um, you know, uh, it, or you know, not, you know, well, if I go and I spend this weekend um, down the shore, paddleboarding and swimming, you know, I won't be able to feed my pet for a week, you know, mm-hmm. you make that trade off. You're not having to make that trade off. And that's sort of a, a way that, you know, it's not necessarily that the, the, the money is buying happiness, but it's buying you the opportunity. It's buying you, in my, I would say a safety net. It's buying you a measure of um, safety. Whereas if things happen to you, you're not in danger of immediate peril. Mm-hmm. I, I think, and I think that's where the literature is sort of going with this. Um, and uh, this is a good place, though, to take a little break for some underwriting announcements before we go to the next segment. Uh, we'll be right back with Health 411 after these brief announcements. You're listening to 1077 The Bronx and 1077thebronc.com. This is Health 411, truthful health information to expand your knowledge and perspective. The Rider University Health Studies Institute presents Health 411, underwritten in part by the Repovich Institute for New Jersey Politics and Rider University. Continue your studies with Rider University's online and part-time options at rider.edu slash next step. We're back with Dr. Jonathan Karp, only on 1077 The Bronx. Uh, 1077 The Bronx, 1077thebronc.com from the remote Bronx studios. Welcome back to L411. Isaac and I, uh, Professor Jonathan Karp, are having a conversation about the association and the literature and the literature that study studying the question: can money buy happiness? 
because we know that happiness um, is a component of wellness and health. And we, re we reviewed uh, some basic, you know, th three or so different studies um, in the, the, you know, in the, in the, that have been very recent that have looked at the connection and sort of are addressing the question, can money buy ha happiness? And what we now know is that in a sense, money can reduce sadness, money can improve measures of happiness, money can allow you to experience more frequent um, uh, feelings of happiness, not necessarily changing the intensity of it, but that improved frequency of happiness that is a benefit of having financial resources, um, especially when some of that happiness is associated with leisure activities that, is, that are related to um, active participation in things, um, active you know, social engagement, um, active prayer, active um, athletic events, whether it's horse riding or not, Isaac or something like that. Financial resources can provide that for you. And that might be part of the link between wellness and happiness um, and, and money. And so in terms of discussion, what kind of things are, do you think the financial resources that lead to health? What are some of the, um, you know, so I'm throwing it out there to you, Isaac. What do you think about sort of this current literature looking at the happiness and well, health and wellness? I think it's, I think it's fairly accurate. I mean, like, I know for my, in my personal life, I feel like that. Um, if I feel like I had more money, I'd be less stressful. I wouldn't have a tuition to pay <laughs> as a student. <laughs> well, so, I, I would hope you would finish, finish your, your university studies, irrespective of how much money you have. Um, you know, yeah. You have less debt coming out the other end. I would hope that you would still finish college because the stu studies do show also that a college education is important um, um, long-term, even if you come out with some debt, your earning potential is much higher over your lifetime. And, and as we're talking about, if your earning potential is higher over your lifetime, at least on a statistical level, you'll, you're going to have the opportunity uh, for more happiness, you know, not, not to buy it, but you'll have more opportunities to have higher, more frequent measures of happiness over the course of your lifetime, which can have health benefits um, kinds of things. So, um, those things are good. So in a sense, the money can buy you leisure time. And, but let's look at it in a little bit more detail. What does the opportunity to buy more leisure time mean? Um, if you have more leisure time, the money is, you're having resources, financial resources, is perhaps giving you more security. And what's one that I was talking about before. If you have you know, money saved, you have money in the bank and you're not living paycheck to paycheck, you know, if something happens to you, you know, you're out driving on the highway and a pebble comes up and cracks your windshield, you can get the windshield replaced. You know, it's not going to devastate your family. If you lose your job, like, and this relates to what's happening now in society with the pandemic happening. Um, and I'm pretty sure almost anywhere you drive around, you see a lot of small businesses that are being boarded up or closed because people, you know, they just can't operate with all the rules that, you know, that our states are putting out there that hopefully will go away soon. But people who don't have resources built up might lose their job or lose their business. Um, and that's a lot of stress and that's a, a, an absence of financial security, right? That can lead to um, bad health outcomes or not seeking help 
you know, uh, in, in a medical sense, because it's too expensive to go to the doctor. Or I mean, you see TV shows now where people are going to the drugstore, you know, with, you know, they plea on your heart with two children and the drug just says, oh, that'll be $15 for the prescription. And the parent says, oh, that's too expensive and walks out with their two young kids, you know, and it, it, they're trying to, they want to sell you a certain kind of prescription insurance. But the idea is that healthcare can be expensive. Right, and that can lead to stress. It's an absence of security, uh, and and that financial security is not just finance. It can have uh, negative health um, and societal consequences, depending what people do to try to you know, you know, more money, more money, more money to steal a line from an old TV show. Um, yeah. <laughs> I might. I might be dating myself a little bit. Mace, I, I, know, I know the phrase is like more money, more problems uh, uh, from Mace uh, okay. at uh, Notorious B.I.G. and uh, P. Diddy. So that's, that's definitely the... I'm that's thinking, the, of, I'm thinking of an old uh, an old TV show. Uh, I guess it was from the early 90s. I think it was called In Living Color. And they, they had like skits and stuff in it. it was yes, yes. I, that, that, I do remember that reference. Um. But anyway, they're, they're, so what else is, uh, what else are financial resources giving you that are related to health and wellness? Uh, I feel like financial, by buying leisure time, it's like letting you to be comfortably, you know, have that leisure time. So I guess like there's no trade-off to it. So for instance, like, you know how some people would buy a motorcycle or like, heck even a boat <laughs> and go fishing or go fishing and stuff so like i know for example my dad um during the pandemic with all the university he's a university employee at george mason i know during during the time when he got the days off uh when he didn't have to go to work or there was no meetings he'd drive down to the river to go fish and that was when that that's when you know you have a little more leisure time you can do stuff like that so you can do physical activities and that's where i feel like it's not necessarily oh like fiscal like fiscal money like oh let me go buy like this. It's more of like I can afford to do this in a sense. If that makes yeah. sense. I mean, I think I think what you're describing um, from the real experience with your family is consistent with what the what the literature is showing. You know, mm -hmm. um, I would consider you know fishing sort of an active activity. I mean, I mean, yeah, you sit there, but I mean, you're doing stuff, you're engaged. There's a, there's a relaxation mental health component to that. So, you know, disengaging with the stresses of work and, you know, your family life, whatever, whatever it's going on. I think that's important. And I think that's what the liter literature is showing. Um, and what it's also showing an inter interesting thing is that, and I don't, I don't want to speak for you, Dad. You know, he was deriving his happiness from engaging in activity. He wasn't deriving happiness from just going out and buying more toys, right? right. And I think the, you know, the the uh, the the. I, I didn't look into that specifically, but you're making me think about it. Is people who go out and use their resources just to buy more toys are they necessarily happier? What do you think? What do you think that literature would show if we were going to look at that? No, I, I, I don't think they are. I don't think. No, no, you're like, not going to go look right now. <laughs> no, like, I don't think. I don't think people are. Um, I don't think people are necessarily happy when you buy more toys because, like, how many more toys you can get? Like, unless you're going to use these toys. Like, okay. for instance, like I hate when I see like these like car. Like, unfortunately, during the pandemic, I got into watching 
car vloggers and I love cars. I love cars. Like I have a dream car and you see these ridiculous like car YouTubers. Okay. There's some that have some like reason about like over their collection, but you see some of these r- ridiculous ones with like 15 cars and it's like four of the same car. And I'm like, <laughs> like, I'm sitting here like you can do, you can like mix up, you can diversify the collection and maybe resell it and then buy another one. And I'm sitting, that's just me thinking, but I'm like, I don't think it does because like you can only buy so much stuff. Hey, you can only physically buy so much stuff. That's why I'm like, okay, if I'm gonna buy a toy, at least I'm gonna try to make sure I'm financially secure so I can use that toy more often, like a motorcycle or like fish or like horseback riding. Like for me, I want to buy a paddleboard so I can use it more often so I can go down to the river and then maybe along the line buy a lake house to go use that said paddleboard. Right. So. Right. And so I think what your instinct is and what you're conveying, your instinct to me seems to be consistent with the literature that's out there, the people who study happiness, is that you know, having some money affords you the ability to buy some of these things so you can engage in active recreation, active disengagement with the stresses of life. And that's what leads to happiness. Um, the, a side effect of this, which... Um, I'll, I'll mention we don't have a lot of time to go into is part of the active engagement in people with money is more social interactions with other people, sharing experiences. And yes. where, I, where, where I was going to go with this is that the data show who people have looked at this, it's not having more toys that makes people happy. It's more shared experiences with other humans and other people. And so the idea being is if you have the ability for leisure time, don't use it just to buy toys, but you know, spend the money to, have to, to share experiences with other people. And that will lead to health or happiness and happiness can lead to wellness and in, improved uh, or less frequent disease and um, better health outcomes if you happen to get sick. That's um, true. That's and where I'm gonna go with. Yeah, and I agree with you. And that's why it comes to me, I have this last question to ask you. So. Based off that literature right now, Dr. Carp, are you currently very, are you currently happy or content in a way? Um, you know, recording a radio show with you, Isaac, how could I not be happy <laughs> in the moment? Oh, I appreciate um, it. You know, but, 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 but generally I am. Yeah. Gen, gen, generally, ha- I, I'm more of a, a cup half full sort of guy. How about you? Yeah. Yes. At, in the moment, yes. Uh, recording with you is amazing. <laughs> And um, outside recording with you, yeah, for the most part, for the most part. I mean, there could be some upgrades, but yeah. Yeah, excellent. Uh, this is a great place to end the show, Isaac. Um, yes. 1077 The Bronx, 1077thebronc.com. We are recording uh, from the remote Bronx studios. Thank you to listen for listening to Health 411, especially this conversation between um, Isaac Harris and myself. This program is part of the Rider University effort to bring people together to address all issues associated with health and healthcare. I hope today's conversation with me and Isaac about happiness and happiness and wellness informs some of the things that you were thinking about. If you have any questions or comments about this program, please email us at health411 at rider.edu. That was this week's episode of Health 411 with Dr. Jonathan Karp. 
Tune in every Sunday at 10 a.m. to learn truthful information about your health and the healthcare industry. Missed an episode? No worries. You can subscribe to a free weekly episode of Health 411 to listen to on your favorite podcasting platform. Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, whatever. The Rider University Health Studies Institute presents Health 411, underwritten in part by the Repovich Institute for New Jersey Politics and Rider University. Rider offers continuing studies programs for adults who need flexibility. Want to add new skills to your resume? Take a continuing studies course at Rider University. We'll see you soon, only on 1077 The Bronx.